Thank you for joining us for episode two of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. I'm James Golden, also known as Bo Snurdly. Today, special for me. The two people that sat with me for 20 years, the inner family, if you will, Dawn Baczynski, Brian Johnson, join me today reminiscing about our beloved Rush. Whether you listened every day, you are at the EIB Network and the Rush Limbaugh program heard on over 600 great radio stations. Or every now and then. Nation's leading radio talk show, the most eagerly anticipated program in America. These are the stories you've never heard from the people behind the scenes who knew him best and loved him most. Rush Limbaugh having more fun than a human being should be allowed to have. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone. Hosted by James Golden. My Pillow continues to roll out new products that have changed the sleep game for the better, and they've done it again. This time, introducing their My Slippers. Mike Lindell took over two years to develop these, ensuring they weren't just an ordinary slipper. These slippers are made with a three tier cushioning system, two layers of My Pillow foam, and a layer of impact gel to prevent fatigue and to offer all-day comfort. These slippers can be worn all day long, both indoor and outdoor. They're made from high-quality leather. You need these extremely durable yet comfortable slippers right now. My listeners get 40% off my slippers. Log on to MyPillow.com, click on the new radio listener specials, and use the promo code ICON to receive this incredible offer. The slippers come with a year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee. Again, that's MyPillow.com, promo code ICON. By the, uh, the Democrats of the drive-by media. Okay, the door is opened and a giant cake is being brought in here that I accidentally saw when I went back there to get a cookie. <laughs> I saw the cake and I didn't say a word about it and I saw you snuck the 28th anniversary balloon in here. Happy anniversary! That is a, that is a gorgeous cake. I, I have to say that. It's the 28th. I see it says 28. I saw that when I saw the cake back there in the kitchen. I, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous cake. Every it really is. day is going to be like this? Every, well, I don't mean the anniversary. I'm talking about this gunk in the news. That's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Which I will get. You know, this is so easily avoided. Not the cake. The gunk. The gunk. I knew you'd do a cake, even though I've told you 28 years not to do it. They do it every year. Anyway, telephone number if you want to... So for the last 20 years, the three of us, there are three of us, we became, well, we we call each other family because that's what we are. And we were all there. Before any, before Dawn and I showed up on the scene, there was Brian. That's me. Yeah, Brian Johnson. Now, Brian, you, between all of us, you probably have the most radio experience of anybody here. And there's a reason for that. Well, Yes. I was born in a radio station. Right. Yes, yes. My mother and my father, they met working in radio. My dad was the engineer. My mom was the receptionist at a radio station in uh, Iowa. And they got married, and my mom got pregnant, and they moved to Florida. In that order? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so the rest is history. Uh, yeah. Yep. So, so how did you how did you get the call to to deal to come and work with Rush? Well, that's a good question. My father has his own engineering consulting firm in radio, and um, he owns a bunch of radio stations down here in South Florida. And uh, I was working with him at the time, 
and Clear Channel was the name of the company at the time. They were looking for an engineer that could engineer a facility that was kind of secret, and they wanted somebody different to come over there and take care of it that wasn't really associated with anybody that could be really discreet. So um, I guess they thought of me because they knew I worked with my father, and everybody knows my father in the engineering business. So they called and my dad told me, you know, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll go over and I'll meet them and check it out and that sort of thing. And I was young. I was 25 or something like that. So I basically went over there and um, met them and I said, OK, I'll do it. You know, it was just an hourly type of deal. And this is back in 96. Yeah. And um, so I did it and met Rush and then um Never saw him again for a year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. So they hired you to, yeah. to work with Rush. You met him and yep. you what? You set up his studio or something? What'd you do? No, they actually had the studios built for him in Palm Beach. You okay. remember the whole thing where they wouldn't let him do it in his house and that sort right, of stuff. Right. So yeah. the Premier built him studios in the financial district of Palm Beach and they needed an engineer. And that's that's when they called me. And basically, Rush was sitting there doing it all by himself. They had all the equipment, the Zephyrs all stacked up there, and he had switches. If one didn't work, he could throw a switch, and it would throw it to the second group of Zephyrs and all that sort of stuff, and he could get on the air that way. And that's what he did all by himself until we all came on the scene in uh, 2001. So for a year and a half, you didn't see Rush, and then what happened? Then they called and said, Rush got this new piece of equipment that he wanted me to install that allowed him to record his CDs. You know how he liked to record all his music oh, and all yeah, that we're stuff gonna, yeah, 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 yeah. So he was doing that sort of stuff, and uh, they wanted me to come and install this piece of equipment. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll come over and do it. So I went over and did it, and I didn't hear from him again for a year and a half. You know, I figured, <laughs> oh, he just doesn't like me, you know? <laughs> So then um, the year of uh, September 11th in 2001, near the beginning of the year, Rush himself started reaching out to me, was having problems with his hearing and asked me if um, we could get some different headsets and things like that for him to try, like uh, the ones that Imus had, remember, that hung down and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. We tried all different ones over that period, that year. Um and people were complaining about his voice changing and stuff like that. Well, I think it was because of him losing his hearing, um, right. you know, gradually. So his voice kind of changed a little bit during that time. Anyway, September 11th happened and Premier Radio called me and said, listen, we don't know what's going on in the world. Could you be there every day at this point? So my father said, well, it's Rush. You got to go do it. So I said, all right. So I basically dropped everything I was doing with my dad and the engineering and all the radio stations and just sat in the parking lot for the next two weeks, you know, because there was no way for me to listen because none of the equipment in the studio was hooked up. You know, It was all self-contained in a box right next to him on his desk. And um, eventually about a week into that, I'm like, all right, this is crazy. So I went in and wired it all into the rest of the studio so I could at least come inside and listen and watch. And um, that's when he came in and said that he lost all his hearing in one ear and he needed to talk to Premier and see what was going to happen going forward. So he flew off to California, and then I got a call a few days later from a guy who said, uh, John Axton. Oh, John yes. Axton, yes. And he called and said, uh, basically, Rush filled us all in and everything, and we have this uh, lady, Dawn, that we'd like you to meet with. Mm -hmm. And uh, we want to try doing the show on the internet 
on Sunday. Could you set up all this equipment and screens and all this stuff? And we want to try stenography and see if this will work for us. So I, of course I jumped and did everything and met Dawn. So when did you get the call, Dawn? And what was the call like? It was right after 9-11. It was that month. And so you have to take yourself back in time to that period. And it was, you know, and I, I was, I'm a court reporter, a stenographer, and had been for many years. In How many years? But in the court system since. Uh, because I asked that because when, when I first met you, you were like really young. Yes. And you came in with like this flaming. You were really young too, yeah. James. <laughs> That's we right. were all really young. I have a picture of all of us. We were all young, yes. We were all just babies. So you so you got a call from John Axton, too? So I got a call from John Axton, and I just thought it was a job for the day. It was a real-time job. Right. And so they said it was to come over for this person named Rush Limbaugh, who I had never heard of. I'm in the court system. You know, I'm always doing stuff. I didn't know who the senator was in Iowa, and I really didn't care, you know? <laughs> but, did you know who O.J. Simpson was? Well, yes, I did know who O.J. Simpson was. Did you know who was. Johnny Cochran was? <laughs> I knew a lot about the law, but not a lot about, uh, nothing about Russia, actually. Okay. And so um, I came over that day, and of course the day uh, Kit Carson was there, like it was full of, of people I didn't know which one of those people happened to be Rush or not. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Who the person was that I was there working for. And I also didn't know that he had lost his hearing. This was a big secret, a huge secret. I had to sign a confidentiality agreement before I came in, you know, because it hadn't been disclosed yet. You know, okay. at, at, at that point, he hadn't disclosed it. So. And then I came in and uh, they proceeded to tell me that they tried out all these stenographers from California and from all these other places and they all didn't work. And this is blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, what am I getting myself into here today? (laughs) (laughs) What did I agree to come to? And so uh, it was, we were in our old studio, which is kind of like, I always tell people, it's like the show Frasier when you looked through the glass and you would see it like that. And so Rush was on the other side, and Craig was in the other side with Rush that day too. And Craig said, "Listen, I'm Craig just, Kitchen. Craig Kitchen." And he said, "Listen, I'm just going to have a conversation with Rush, and if you could just write it down." And I thought, "Boy, this is the craziest job that I've ever had." You know, <laughs> <laughs> like what is this? You know, but okay, sure. Uh, and so he, they just started talking and it was very basic, like, hi, Rush, how are you today? You know, and of course, <laughs> Rush couldn't hear. So he's looking at him like, okay, Craig, you know, because <laughs> he was completely 100% deaf. He hadn't had his cochlear implant yet. So, you know, he wrote him a little note to start talking. And so then Rush started talking and I started writing it and then they could, they were reading it. So as, as it came up, they were reading what was being said. And so that went on for quite, I mean, for about 30 minutes where they were trying to make up some kind of conversation (laughs) to to be able to read. So then I still thought I was just there for the day. They came back in and Craig said, well, you know, we would like you to come here back here again tomorrow. And so I said, okay. And still not really realizing the, the gravity of what was going on. Um, and so anyway, that day when I was leaving, before I, I left, you know, and Rush couldn't, couldn't um, really hear anything at that time. So he had written me a note and it said, I can't thank you enough. I know I can do this now. And he had tears in his eyes, oh my you know, gosh. and so, uh, you know, yeah. anyway, 
That's at how that it point, all started. Be, at that point, did you begin to suspect that um, this was a little bit more than you had? Well, I I still really we we still were not kept completely in the loop with with what was going on. But never are. No, <laughs> <laughs> we never are. You know, I. Like I said, you know, my daughter was like three, and so I wasn't planning on being full-time, but I saw what this man, the passion that he had for what he was doing and what he was going through, and how he had completely lost his hearing. And it really wasn't even, I didn't really even have to think much about it. I knew this is what I was going to do. I was going to make sure that no matter what, I was going to be there every day. I think we all did that. Yeah, Yeah. we all did. We all were thrown into the fire and we just went with it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the next thing you know, we're jetting off to New York on private jets and traveling all around. And I'm just like, this is crazy. I was just in Okeechobee, Florida (laughs) two months ago, you know? We're doing this program in a pretty different way than it's been done in the past. And while those of you watching the Ditto Cam only see me, uh, I, I couldn't do this uh, without the people that have broomed all of their priorities and made me their top priority. If, if uh, so many wonderful people had not made this program and made a top priority, we couldn't be pulling this off the way it is. During the course of this podcast series, you'll be hearing from Russia's friends, family members, and influential leaders from the political and media worlds. On today's podcast, you'll be hearing from a man whose voice the Rush Limbaugh audience knows and adores. He's America's undocumented anchorman, whose dulcet voice was heard for almost two decades when Rush was away. Best-selling author, original thinker, most important to me, a true friend who's one of the smartest and kindest gentlemen on planet Earth, Mark Stein. Or or maybe I'll say Mark Stein, quite brilliant, isn't he? The Life of Rush Limbaugh, Chapter 2, narrated by Mark Stein. Rush Hudson Limbaugh III landed his first job when he was just 13, shining shoes at a Cape Girardeau barbershop. And I'll bet he was a pretty good shoeshine boy. But what he really wanted to be was that guy on the radio. For Rush, being a disc jockey represented more fun than a junior human being should be allowed to have. My wildest dreams when I was a young kid pretending to be a DJ on the radio when I was eight years old. He fell in love with a toy radio transmitter that allowed him to broadcast inside the house to members of his family. Any kid who's wanted to be on the radio will know the thrill of making your own cassette tapes of you doing voiceovers over Frankie Avalon and the Maguire sisters or whoever's singles it was back then. But as one of those gazillions of would-be boss jocks, I certainly envy Rush that transmitter gizmo. Some kids have to make do with bringing an old baby monitor down from the attic. It was the most amazing thing. It's plastic. It was about three feet long and two feet high. And it transmitted over AM within the confines of a, I don't know, a small house. The quality was horrible, but it worked. At 16, Rush, with a little help from his dad, advanced from the toy transmitter to the real thing. He got an internship at KGMO 1550 AM. And then the intern realized his childhood dream and got on the air, spinning platters under the name Rusty Sharp. That's a fabulous radio moniker, but only half true in this case. Rush was always sharp 
and never rusty. Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Steve, this is my hometown. How are you, sir? Good. Greetings from the City of Roses. Thank First you, sir. Caller. Thank you, sir, very much. I was six years behind you in school, but I used to listen to you on KGMO. Is that right? <laughs> I was the one that called every day and say, man, play in a God of Davida, will you? <laughs> Once he was on the radio, he never looked back, working mornings and afternoons at KGMO, and then it happened. Rusty Sharp got fired and kicked off the air. The first of many firings for Rush over the years, all of which setbacks he overcame and learned from on his way up to the one gig, the third of a century engagement, that ultimately only God could terminate him from. He wasn't your typical 1960s teenager. He didn't need and never sought the approval of the high school in-crowd. He preferred to socialize with older, more mature friends, although he won the admiration of his school's upperclassmen with his quick wit and sharp mind and fearlessness in debate. He wasn't afraid to stand out, to be contrarian. He refused, for example ever to wear blue jeans. Come on, let's face it. It's like, it's like a Volvo or a Saab. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a Prius. It's, it's a liberal status symbol. Jeans are liberal status symbols. Yeah, at least they were. I know everybody wears them now. It's another battle we've lost. Absolutely. They used to be a status symbol or a Compromised symbol. Compromised our sartorial splendor and we run around <laughs> looking like a bunch of hippies. And I'm not going to do it. He had yet to finish high school, but already there was a Rush Limbaugh style and a Rush Limbaugh brand. After graduating from Cape Girardeau Central in 1969, Rush was expected by his father to go to college. So he enrolled at nearby Southeast Missouri State University. But after only two semesters, Rush dropped out for good. Radio was calling. And Rush chose to pursue his dream, confident that it was about to become reality. Unforgettable. That's the impression that you, the Rush Limbaugh audience, made with your support for Rush's last charitable effort while Rush was still with us. Through the Stand Up for Betsy Ross campaign, your generosity resulted in a $5 million donation to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Rush said it best. We chose Tunnel to Towers to be the beneficiary of the campaign because we love the work they do and the story about how they started. When a family experiences significant loss, the mother or father passes while serving our country, Tunnel to Towers steps in, frees that family of a major worry during their time of crisis. Tunnel to Towers pays off mortgages in full for these families and provides them with the comfort of a home when their world has literally been turned upside down. The foundation does the same for first responders and also builds smart homes for our most catastrophically injured veterans and first responders. More heroes need your help. Do good by donating $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's the letter T, the number two, the letter T, Dot org. Shortly after, the number three came in. That's right. So how did that happen? I call Rush and um, I because I asked him, I, I was listening and because I was at the time I was in Maryland and I was still doing things for the show. I was still doing a lot of stuff for the show, but I had moved to Maryland. I noticed, though, that something was up. 
with Rush's voice and something was going on. So I called him. I'm like, Rush, what's, what's, is everything, are you okay? Is everything good? And he told me at the time, he said, you know, I, he said, if I told you what was going on, you might not believe it or you, or he said something else. I'm trying to remember what it was because it kind of scared me. He said, if I told you what it was, if I told you how bad things really were, it was something to that effect. Yeah. You wouldn't believe it. I'm like, what could possibly be this bad? And then I got a call from John Axton shortly afterwards. Uh-huh. And he told me that Rush was losing his hearing. And I told him to book a flight for me, please, for the next day. And and, and I remember getting, this was, I hadn't been to Palm Beach before. Right. You know, I've always read about Palm Beach, heard about Palm Beach. Mm-hmm. When, when Rush moved to Palm Beach, I was in the New York studios. And I'd ask him about the weather every day. In the winter, I'd be like, oh, man, it's 80 degrees down there. <laughs> and it sucks here. And, and all the rest of that. I'd go through, um, every day I would walk through Penn Station, they'd be announcing the train that was running from New York to Miami, and I'd always hear Palm Beach as like three or four stops before Miami. I'd say, oh man, I wonder what it's like in Palm Beach. Wouldn't it be nice to work in Palm Beach? But I never thought I would ever be in Palm Beach. I was in New York, I'm a New Yorker. So We remember, right, Don? Oh, yeah. We took us a while. We had to work on you to turn you into a Floridian. You know that? (laughs) And so what happened was I got there that night. And when I walked in, Rush was in the parking lot. Kit was in the parking lot. And and John Axton. And so I walked over and I gave Rush a hug. And we, but I didn't, the gravity of it was really weird. Because I didn't, you know, I didn't. You know, he had kept it really well that he was completely 100% deaf. Yeah. So that was really a little bit weird. And then that I, was only me and him for yeah. a while. Yeah, that really knew he was losing his hearing. So the next day, I come into this little studio, and there you're there. Yeah. And then Dawn is there, and like Dawn is this hottie patati, <laughs> right? Yeah, you were. You, I'm no offense. I mean, but <laughs> that was 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, was. Well, dang, I was. You were too. Well, yeah. Well, that was 30 years ago. <laughs> I'm still a hottie patati. Brian was. Yeah. Brian was Superman. Yeah, Brian me. looked like Clark Kent. Yeah, and that's what we were saying. Wow, we used this? to call him Superman. Yeah, I a, guess you're still Superman. I'm still Brian. Superman. Yeah, but just you have a little gray, older. You have gray hair now. Superman yes. didn't have gray hair. Right. <laughs> And wait a minute. And Brian, those were in the days when you used to come. I'd be to, single. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So wait, you used to come to work and sometimes you used to sleep under the console. <laughs> sometimes you're out a but little late, right? But we always right? before the commercial. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, but I had no idea then that 20 years later, we'd all be, be here. No. Know? Yeah, back in the beginning, he couldn't hear at all. So... I don't know if you guys remember this, but we would hold up cards for the breaks for yep. if there was 10 seconds left or 30, 30. seconds left. And yep. so we were trying to make it fun for him because he was totally deaf and just trying everything. And he had so much passion for this. So we would hold up the cards. So I would pretend like I was in a boxing ring and I was the girl going back and forth <laughs> with the 30 seconds, you know, <laughs> when he would start laughing, just anything we yep. could. To we eat. had to think like we were deaf and yeah. how could you do the show? And I mean, right. I put LED lights. Right, I remember yeah. you had that yellow light, the yeah. red light yeah. and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. And I was trying different vibrating devices to put on the chair. Excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> 
We had those DeRoe. Excuse me. So, wait, hold, hold tight. You were trying different vibrators? Well, to hook onto his chair so he oh. could feel the audio in his chair. Well, and then I was doing the you know that, d- Brian, DeRoe. Brian, I'm sorry. That sounds freaky. Okay. Yeah. I'm just sorry. That sounds a little well, freaky. Bro. He could only feel stuff or see stuff. So, you had two options, you know? Okay. So, we I had DeRoe. Remember the DeRoe meters? We had those in front of him. So, those big LED VDs. Yeah. yeah. We yeah, had yeah. those. We had AOL instant messaging. That's yes. really what really helped us a lot back then. That's how we communicated with them was AOL instant messaging. And we used to, because when he completely couldn't hear, uh, if a caller was screaming, we would turn the screen red. So he, even if he was looking the other direction, if he looked back, he would know the caller right, was the screaming. Was, yeah. I don't remember all the colors, but if it was blue, it might have been crying. Because you have to remember, this is after 9-11. And right. a lot of the callers yeah. were crying. And we had so many people from Rockaway and all these towns around New York City that we were fielding all these calls. And so we yeah. were all crying. But but we would, if it was a seminar caller, it would be yellow. You know, we had all these colors that would just flash up on the screen for him. And then he got the implant, and then life kind of got back to normal. Yes, a it did. Bit. Except, you know, he could, he always said we could hear like FM radio, he could hear like AM radio. And that was kind of how he, uh, you know. So that's why Dawn still needed to be there because the problem we would have are the phone call, phone calls, right. where the audio isn't so clear all the time. Now, he was fine with us in the studio environment because the walls were 10 feet thick and it was dead silent in those rooms. It was real easy for him to hear us with the implant. But if he ever went out into a room where there's a group of people and stuff like that, he could not hear. It was just all noise to him. Um, So we had the advantage for the 20 years to actually have real conversations with Rush in the studio. Outside of it, it was just a crapshoot for him. So if you had to pick out one of your favorite stories, I know you just, what oh, would, do you want me to give mine? Yeah. Okay. Here it is. Uh, one day, yeah, I used to come into the studio probably around nine thirty, ten o'clock most days. Rush yeah. would get there at about eight forty-five. Um, he would sit in his room and I always sat at the console, which was directly in front of Rush on the other side of the glass. And I just kind of used that as my desk. And that way, if he ever needed anything, he would just hit the talk back button on his desk and it would just come right into my room and I would respond to him. Yeah. Um, So I always sat right there and there was only the four of us. Yeah. Us three and Rush at the studio most of the time. So there was nobody to answer phones or get the doors or that was us, you know? So most of the time I took on the answering the phones so that you could do show prep with, you know, for Rush. And um, so, yeah, so that was kind of our routine. Well, one day I got in there at 10 and I sat down there and I answered the phone and we always said studio when we answered the phone because we didn't want to say Rush Limbaugh show or anything like that. We were trying to be hidden. So I said studio and this guy on the other end says, Uh, Yes, this is Elton John. I'm calling for Rush. Well, I immediately said to him, yeah, sure it is. Who is this really? And he's like, no, really, it's Elton John. And I'm like, this isn't Elton John. You're not calling, you know, you're not Elton John. And he's like, no, really, let me sing to you. I'm like, seriously. All right, listen. Did he sing for you? Well, he was he was starting to sing. Yes, I like hold on. Let me let me go in there and I'll tell him it's Elton John. (laughs) I just did not believe him. (laughs) So I put the guy on hold and I walked around and I went into Rush's studio and I said, "Hey, Rush, I got some guy on line one claiming he's Elton John." And he Rush looks at me like that. 
stone cold right at me and says, well, it probably is Elton John, Brian. And I just, my heart just sank. And I'm like, ah, and I just walked out of the room and uh, I didn't know what to think at that point. So after that call, he was on the phone with them for like an hour, you know, and I'm figuring, oh, that was Elton John. <laughs> so later after that was done, he, I think he sent us all an email or called us all on the PA system and said, no matter what you do, you don't tell anybody <laughs> that Elton John just called here today. So right. we we're like, mum's the, you know, we're like, okay. Goodbye, Yellow Brick Road. Right. So we were later, we were at the wedding. Right. And uh, I'm sitting next, I think I was sitting next to Tom Watson, the golfer. And a couple other people. And they're sitting there talking about, oh, I hear there's somebody famous going to be singing and stuff at the wedding, you know. And we're all, like, not saying a word. And um, they're saying they think it's Tim McGraw and stuff. So, uh, <laughs> you know, they were all, it was the talk of the wedding, you know. And uh, I think it leaked out from. Uh, What's his name? The gossip column down here. Yeah. 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 They, they found out that it was Elton John, but it wasn't us. No. <laughs> it was never us. Never us. Nope. Once again, my highly overrated staff has let me know. The EIB Network now has an official Obama criticizer. He is Bo Sturdley. I got Cookie working on the soundbite even now. You might be confusing Cookie with Coco. Coco is married to Cookie. Coco runs the website. The video is actually taken from the control room. What you see, the back of the broadcast engineer's head, Brian Johnson. Which is as close to fame as Brian says he wants to get. That was Greg Chapin's idea back in the cave there where these guys put these bites together. I'm sure Denise at the Limbaugh Letter could come up with a great graphic after Cookie cracks the whip and tells him what to do. So what we've done, Joe Muniz on our staff has recorded all of what I said in Espanol. Mamon, the broadcast engineer, had a different idea. I just sent a picture up to Coco Jr., whose, whose actual name is Dean. Craig Kitchen from our staff. Kit Carson, former irreplaceable chief of staff and trusted right hand. Diana Schneider, editrix of the Limbaugh Letter. Dawn, are you irritated by this? You don't like this? I thought I detected a facial expression. She's sitting in there and her face getting contorted and so forth, and I, I knew it. I knew it. I wanted to issue a special thanks to the, I call them highly overrated staff. They may be, but they're incredibly valuable. They're incredibly loyal. They are incredibly committed. And they are exceptionally, exceptionally devoted. And none of this could happen without them. So we're we're all sitting here, Dawn, uh, Brian, and myself, Brian Johnson, Dawn Bachinsky. What is it that you most would want the world to know about the Rush Limbaugh that you knew? Dawn, you're the boss. Go first. <laughs> well, that's funny that you say I'm the boss because very, very early on, it was just the four of us there. It was just you know, Rush and Brian and James and me. And so stuff would go on or things would be happening and everybody's kind of not paying attention. And I'm like, well, what is going on here? This is a big mess, you know? And so I would start directing people, you know, if somebody was there that day to fix it because it had to be done correctly, you know? So then throughout the years, whenever we would have people come for any reason and they were asking questions, Rush would just say, Ask Dawn, she's the boss, you know, and they kind of looked like, haha, that's a joke. And he's like, no, ask Dawn. <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Yeah. You know, I, I said earlier, and I know that 
if people haven't listened to the show, they have one idea of what who Rush is. You know, other people that listen to the show, they might love him and they have this idea of of who he is, too. And we know those people, too. But we also know the person that wasn't on the the radio show. And he is just a just one of the best men that you could ever know. Very humble, which people don't believe that when you say that, but so humble just so grateful for where he was and still wanting to pinch himself for where he was and still always thinking, you know, I'm, I think my parents would be proud of me for this, you know, or when he would just do an award or just do anything or anything he would do. Like people just, I I don't think they saw that side of him enough. And he was not one to tout it when he would give so generously to so many organizations and so many people and would do so many things anonymously, you know, and do so much that people will never know the amount of stuff that he's done throughout his life because he was not about look at me. You know, even though he would say on the radio, look at me. Because <laughs> and that, a lot of times that was for us. Right. <laughs> I mean, we may, he might not have think we were paying attention enough. Look know? at me. <laughs> look at me. <laughs> what did I just talk about? And I'm like, I don't know. I wrote every word, but I don't know. <laughs> no. She bangs on the desk just like Rush did. I know. Yes. Seriously. Uh, Brian, what would you want people to know about Rush? Well, I mean... She's right. I mean, he's very generous, has been for all of us. He really is a very down-to-earth person. I mean, I got to spend some time with his family last month. You know, we all did. Yeah. And they really are a really down-to-earth, nice family. And I was really sad that we didn't see more of them and spend more time with them. I see where he comes from, though, and I, I get it. I see, you know, they were all so nice, and they all loved us to death. And... um they wanted to hear more and know more about Rush because they really weren't around us much, you know, the last 10 years. And um, I just, it was it was nice to see. I felt really nice to go see his family and know, you know, that there was people that seemed to really love him and care about him. And because he seemed to really love and care about us. I mean, oh. we all had our, we, you know, we all argued there. It's not like, you know, you it argue with rare. your parents. You argue right. with very your, rare. Yeah, we've all argued, yeah. you know, and. You, but, but we never held anything. I mean, it's no. like you argue, get it out of your system, whatever it is. And right. then, and and we always, the thing about the, the four of us, there's no doubt ever for what, what, solitary second how much we loved each other how, and how much we love each other there's right. just no doubt hey, we this were is our family, family. this yes. is our family we were another uh, uh, I, we called it our work family this is our work family yes yeah. and um, so many times people would ask me when they found out what I did they would ask me well what is Rush like I mean it, it was like how can you work for him what is he like you know and but there were others, you know, I would run across the occasional liberal who would be like, oh, my God, that must be so amazing. And wow, you know, they were just infatuated I, with the celebrity and that sort of yeah. thing. But most people would ask me, well, what is it like? And I said, trust me, I don't have to work there. I don't have to. I could go work for my father and do that stuff. I wouldn't work there if he wasn't a great person. And that's generally what I tell everybody, because it's true. You know, he was awesome. He he cared about us, and um, 
most people don't have bosses like that. <laughs> <You know? Ever. laughs> right. Well, one of the things er- early on about him not being what you would typically think of as a celebrity, and he was never a celebrity to the three of us. Right. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> he may have been to all these people who would come and visit us, but he never was to us. And I just remember this one time when Justice Thomas came to visit, you know, and we were all like, this was the first time he came to visit and we were all very excited to say hello to Justice Thomas and get our picture taken with Justice Thomas, you know, so Rush came in the room and we did this almost with every person that came to visit us. We would hand rush the camera and say, please take our picture. <laughs> and, you know, sure, he, he would do it. But I just remember Justice Thomas cracking up that he could not believe Rush was not going to be in the picture. And he was the photographer. <laughs> like, yeah, He was definitely. And I think that's another thing that he loved. He was so comfortable with all of us right you know we've all gone through so many things in our lives together we shared everything together we all know everything about right. each other we've you got know, marriages so, divorces yeah, kids all of us. Yeah. i mean the whole thing you know yes. literally we yeah. were there every single day together for 20 years i know what many of you think rush are you really telling us that you don't know what the audio sound bites are going to be until five minutes before yes folks i'm telling you that Uh, We have a smooth, oiled machine. They've been doing this long enough. They know what I like, don't like. They know what I say I want up there, things I don't. Same people that were here on day one, and they know exactly what I want and don't want. I don't have to tell them, which is the way it should be. The way it should be. So, Dawn, how did you get started? What's what's your story? I'm going to tell a story about when I first started and going back to when you have young kids. And a lot of people think of celebrities and people like this, that they're divas, I don't know what the word is when you're a man, <laughs> but but Rush was, was not that. And from the very beginning, when we had to travel or we had to do anything, he would ask me, well, is Jessica in a play this week or is there anything going on with the kids? Uh, and so, and that's how we would plan if we had to go away for a week or if we had to do something, he would make sure that it didn't interfere with anything. And you don't usually hear stories like that. I'm sure... I, I don't know if um, Premier Radio would have liked that, <laughs> that he was checking with me, <laughs> but that's who he was, you know, and he didn't want to inconvenience anyone ever for anything. I know. You know? Boy, that's for sure. That's for sure. I mean, sometimes he would say, hey, are you going anywhere near Publix where you think you might be able to pick up a turkey sub on your way in? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, but, but really, he was just such a genuine, humble guy. And that's what I want people to take away from this. Yeah. Well, you talked about, I mean, he, he, every single time that, that you, anybody would do anything for him, you always, thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. It was always the epitome of, of, of good manners. And, and I think sometimes he was shocked at what was going on the other side of the glass because we used to have some knockdown drag outs in that room. Yeah, we've had a few. You but know? of course, 20 years moon. we're trapped yeah. in this room, of course. Well, we weren't trapped, but it was... Well, you know. I know. It was still, it was still fun. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But I mean, yeah. It was our own thing, you know? I mean, Rush had his thing, but we had our own little thing too. You right. Know? Yes. Well, that was, we were doing something in there. I don't know. You might have been put on probation with a caller. Like he used to have fun to, doing that, but we installed in the new studios that shade that comes down from the new studios. And it really was installed in case he was, you know, going to 
change for an event that he was going to or something just to have a little extra privacy. But one day we were during the show and he was getting annoyed with all with all of us because whatever we were doing, we were interrupting him or telling him whatever. He's like, that's it, folks. I'm going to close this new shade that I have. And so he closed the shade. And so then he, he waited a little while on, on the air. So I told James and Brian, come on, because he's like, all right, I'm going to let them out in about another few minutes. And I said, we are not going to be here when he opens up that shade. And they're like, oh, we can't do that. We have to stay here. We can't be out of here. I'm like, oh, yes, we are. We're going out. And so we we're not there so he lifted the shade and he's telling the audience and he could barely keep his composure he was laughing so hard and he's like the insubordination here but i mean but that's the kind of fun that that we had and we had that kind of fun every day just like the birthday cakes you know he refused to do that we did it anyway exactly (laughs) anyway um dawn let's i want to get serious with you guys for a minute because this is um what was the last year like for you um brian i'm gonna start with you what was the last year like well it's you're gonna make this hard i don't think i can do it when i received this diagnosis and i was shocked i was stunned and i was in denial i mean i'm rush limbaugh i'm i'm mr big the vast right-wing conspiracy i mean i'm i'm indestructible (laughs) It's been the worst year of my life. Yeah. Even in the most dire circumstances, if you just wait, if you just remain open to things, the good in it will reveal itself. Um, it's not that I don't have a future, I do, but we had such such a thing going on there for so many years, and I haven't lost anybody in my family since 1987. It was my grandfather. So I haven't dealt with this in a long time. And um, I'm always been the kid. Well, Rush was like a second father for me because I probably spent more time with him than anybody in the last 20 years um, face to face. So he was like a second father. I mean, my father's my hero and the greatest person I know, but Rush was right there behind him. You know, I just had, I, I think we had like a father-son relationship and so it's been hard. I mean, I, we're all going to be fine, but, and I think the world is going to miss him a lot. There's a lot of people that from noon to three counted on him, including us. And he steered the world, and I think in a positive direction. And there just isn't somebody out there doing that now. And um, he'll always be a big part of our lives. I mean, he really shaped our lives as much as he did everybody else's. And, um, was a big part of our of us and um he had tremendous confidence in in me and that helped give me tremendous confidence and i told him that before he died he always told me that um i'm not worried about you brian i know you you can do it you know so that gave me tremendous pride um the the one thing you know i always tell everybody that i Part of me working here with Rush in the beginning was to prove to myself that I could do it because I always lived under my father's shadow. And um, it, when I did it, it made my parents really proud of me. I know it did because, you know, my father 
I'm sure he loved traveling around and t- all his engineering buddies asking him about me and how's it going with Rush and all. I mean, Rush was the king of radio, you know? Doesn't get any bigger than that. I, I'm doing the Super Bowl for 20 years every day at work, you know? Basically, yeah. that's what we were doing, you know? Yep. The greatest show on earth. It's um, for 20 years. It's quite the thing. And I don't think I'll ever do anything like this again, you know? And that's fine. You know, this is its own thing, and that's fine. And I'll just always appreciative of everything he did for us because he did a lot for us. He was so generous. With he all was of generous, us. and you're right. You talked about it. He really didn't ask much of us. You know, he um, many times I would get frustrated with him because he wouldn't tell me there was a problem. You know, right. until it was, it just festered so long for months he wouldn't tell me something was broken in the studio because he didn't want to bother me you know and i just floored me you know and it wasn't just me he did that with he did it with everybody yes yes so i will always cherish every moment i had with him i'm sure one day it's going to hit me even harder i mean we didn't really get a full closure uh, on it because of this whole COVID and all this kind of stuff. And it just, it's such a weird time right now, you know? Yeah. Dawn, the last year. Yeah. I don't really think you can put the last year into words. I think it was uh, definitely the hardest year I've ever gone through. And I think we've all, the three of us have, you know, definitely leaned on each other more this year than ever you know we came in and uh you know if one of us was losing it because it was really hard to see rush suffering with the pain that he was suffering in and still coming in to do the show and you know so he can see us right through the glass and he was always very cognizant of what our reactions were and what we thought you know, whether we were telling him, don't go there, stop right there, you know, <laughs> yeah. or whatever it was. So if we were really crying, you know, that would affect him. So we had to really try to still remain positive and engaged and, yes. you know, be fun loving with him and, you know, think of funny things for him because this was his outlet that he loved. And so, you know, we would do it. And then you'd notice one of us, one of the three of us would be missing because we'd be in the other room calling, right. you know, and trying to keep our composure to come back in and put a smile on for Rush, you know. And do it, but uh, yeah, this this year has been rough. Yeah, tough, he he wanted we, that show. He wanted to wasn't keep about doing us. the show. It was no. about him, yes. and we were there to make sure that totally. he, you know, and he knew. He yep. knew. He knew. Yeah, that's what we, some you know someone had asked about you know or made mention of a bucket list. You know, people that know that they're facing. Their, the last days often have a bucket list, things that they want to do before they die. And, and Rush's bucket list was his audience. Rush's bucket list was his show. He loved doing what he did. Yep. He loved it. And the thing about it is, though, you know, each of us has a different had a different relationship with Rush. Yes, we did. During your relationship, you could tell him things and say things to, to Rush that I would never, ever dream of saying. Right. Right? <laughs> ever. And because that's the relationship that you had with him. Brian, he leaned on you in ways that, that for, for things. Yeah, I was his get it done guy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. would, yeah, Brian, take care of this. Yes. I need this to get done. Yep. 
he would ask me to do certain things and then certain things, you know. Um, you were more his political outlet. I was more sports, you know, and, and Don brought that whole woman aspect into yeah. the field. Because if it, if Don wasn't there and it was just us three guys, can you imagine? Oh. It would have been very quiet around there. <laughs> <laughs> I realized at that point that I just need to hear your voice. I listen to you because you remind me of my dad. You are a dad to me. That's how much I look upon you, sir. And like I said, this is a really surprising honor that I was able to just pick up the phone and get through. But I just wanted to let you know that, sir. I honestly am speechless here. I cannot uh, thank you anywhere near appropriately uh, for that. I can especially uh, relate to it. I know how important it was for me to be reminded of my dad uh, and many people and things over the course of my life have. And the same thing with my mother as, uh, as well. Thank you for joining us. Episode two, special one for me. The people that I spent the last 20 years with, my family, Rush's radio family, Dawn and Brian. Next week, we have a special treat for you, the executive, not only behind Rush, but behind most of the big names in radio that you know. Craig Kitchen joins us next episode. Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the golden EIB microphone, is produced by Chris Kelly and Phil Tower the best producers in America. Production assistant Mike Mamone and the executive producers Craig Kitchen and Julie Talbot. Our program distributed worldwide by Premier Networks found on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This is James Golden. This is Bo Snurdly. This is James Golden. I'm honored to be your host for this and every single episode of Rush Limbaugh, the man behind the Golden EIB microphone. Thank you for being with us.